Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 148. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 148 you're listening to. And I'm happy to announce that today my guest is Mr. Bill Smith, Grammy-nominated recording engineer, mixer, and producer, who's worked with Yes, John Fogarty, Steve Lukather, Trevor Horn, Natalie Cole, George Benson, Queen Latifah, and uh, many, many more, of course, but that's just a sampling. Uh, I know Bill because of Pete Dell, uh, mastering engineer. The common denominator between those guys is Al Schmidt. Yeah, that's right. And there's also a connection to Mr. Steve Genowick. So, of course, Steve and Pete and Al, all former WCA guests. And here's how it works. Basically, uh, Peter used to work for Al, then Bill worked for Al, and now Steve works for Al. All fantastic guys, uh, super talented and uh, very, very generous, very giving. And uh, they've been, all three of them have been very kind to me, I will say. They have uh, all brought me into their world. And yeah, just, I have nothing but good things to say about all three of them. So yeah. So the thing with uh, Bill is this is an interview that's been long and coming with the two of us because, um, you know, when I met him, I was like, well, I should, I should interview him after I got to talking with him and realized the extent of what he's done. You can read more about him at billsmith.biz. I encourage you to go check that out. He does all kinds of stuff. Uh, he does, uh, of course, music. Uh, he has his hand in uh, film, television, and all kinds of different media. He's a big fanatic about uh, 5.1 surround music. So we're going to talk about all that in the interview. And Tuesday is Bill's birthday. So the show comes out on Monday. The next day is Bill's birthday. So I'm going to just preemptively say, happy birthday, Bill. Thank you for coming on the show. So that's it. Yeah, Bill Smith. Coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast, so here's here's something uh, that's going on. I don't know if you're aware of it. Uh, if you're in the Bay Area, you are certainly aware of it. We have some intense fires happening uh, that have devastated an immense amount of space. And uh, we're talking about people's homes, businesses, schools, hospitals, up in Napa Valley, uh, Sonoma, north of San Francisco. And when I say people's homes, I'm not talking like three or four homes. I'm talking like entire neighborhoods devastated. The images I've seen have looked like uh, a nuclear bomb went off. It's awful. Absolutely awful. I bring it up because it's raised a lot of questions in our household with my kids. You know, we've been talking about the fires and talking about the fact that uh, in many cases, the people were asked to evacuate at the very last minute and they did not have any time to really take anything other than obviously the people in their house, their pets, but leaving all belongings behind. And many reports have come out about, uh, in fact, uh, electronic music pioneer Bernie Krause losing his whole place, all of his instruments. But he made a comment in the news about it. He said, I think he's, I think it was this, and I'm paraphrasing. I think he said something to the effect of, I've got all my recordings in the cloud. And so this got me thinking and talking with the kids. You know, we're talking about the stuff that we could bring and talking with my wife, of course. And it really gets you thinking about Number one, staying organized. You know, if you're a pack rat and you keep a bunch of crap in your place, clean it up because let's say it happened to you. What would you grab? Well, you'd have to think because your place is so dirty that you can't find anything. And if everything is in its place, uh, then you know where to go. And the things that you might forget, like uh, uh, passports or uh, any cash you might have in your house or um, important documents, uh, kids' schoolwork, any of that kind of stuff. You know, you can buy a fireproof safe for that stuff. You can put it in there. And I've seen quite a few videos on YouTube, actually, people testing fireproof safes, and they do work. So look into that. When it comes to your recording equipment, make sure you're insured. Make sure you, if you're not insured, go online right now and figure it out. I've talked about Music Pro Insurance. I've talked about Joe Monterello from the Music uh, Studio Insurance Program. I think that's what that's called. Anyhow, 
get your act together, friends. Make sure that you're prepared in case an emergency strikes in your area, because it could. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now with hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and natural disasters are, you know, they're all around and their mother nature does not discriminate. She takes everybody and everything with her. So let's all remind ourselves that uh, what's important, obviously, Human lives are important, but when it comes to your gear, take the precautions. You can replace the gear, but you can't replace it if you don't have the money to do so. And if you don't have an insurance program backing you, you're going to have to rely on yourself. So, you know, make sure you're, you're caught up on your insurance. Make sure you know where your stuff is. Make sure you have a plan in place so that your stuff is being backed up. I've talked time and time again about Backblaze. Uh, there's a link. I'll include the link in the show notes just as a reminder. Back your stuff up to the cloud. Make sure stuff is in more than one location. You know, if you have uh, all of your stuff spread around in various drives and there's no backup plan, then you're going to be kind of screwed and you're really going to be hurt. I mean, it's already devastating enough for somebody to lose their house. Let's say you go through that scenario. Yes, it's devastating. But if you had fire insurance and you had uh, some kind of uh, plan with your with your media, then it kind of takes a little bit of the edge off. So I definitely encourage you to do it. Really, really, really hard what, what a lot of those folks are going through. And I, I, I feel terrible. I don't have a clear plan about any kind of donation links. I'm still kind of sussing that out. If I come up with something, I will definitely uh, put it on the Working Class Audio page if you're interested in donating. Firefighters coming from all over neighboring states. And uh, believe it or not, Australia. Australia, uh, you know, helping us out. So, yeah, it's really stretching all the resources. So, uh, that's that. Look into that. Look into making sure that you're organized. Know where your stuff is. Insure your stuff. Yeah, make it make it happen. Of course, uh, AES is happening this week in New York, October 18th through the 21st. So, you know, for all of our sponsors, if uh, if you're stopping by their booths, make sure that you tell them that uh, Working Class Audio sent you. You know, whether that's Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, or if you see Jules from Gearslets wandering around, give them a pat on the back. And, uh, you know, if you're always looking for a conversation starter, say, Matt at Working Class Audio sent me to your booth or sent me to say hello. So, that way you can uh, have a chat about what they're offering and what they're doing. Yeah, be sure and give our sponsors the love that they uh, they deserve. And just, a, of course, a reminder, a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. If you buy any Apollo rack, uh, you can get a free satellite octo or quad. That includes, of course, any of the Apollo 8P, Apollo 16, or the Thunderbolts, you know, the, the original Apollo. And if you do that, then they will, of course, send you um, a Thunderbolt Octo, a Thunderbolt Quad, or a Firewire Quad based on your purchase. So check that out at uaudio.com. Also check out our friends Vance and uh, Jakir doing some videos up there. Always good to see those guys. Also a shout out to our friends over at gearsluts.com. Check out Audio Life, which of course we sponsor here at Working Class Audio, yeah, Audio Life, talking about a lot of the similar topics we talk about here on WCA. Well, that's it. Let's get into it. Let's talk with our friend Bill Smith here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Bill, how the hell are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing great this morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a beautiful morning. Glad to be here. Glad to be alive. Glad yeah. to be alive. Yeah, there's a lot of craziness in the world in all forms, political, environmental. So it is good to just be alive and be safe. And so I'm glad to hear that that is the case for you and uh, for me as well. This has been a long time coming. I've been really uh, thinking about this interview for a while. The last time we got to hang out, just to kind of give the audience some perspective, I had the distinct privilege of sitting at a dinner table with you and Jeff Emmerich, Pete Dell, Dusty Wakeman, Michael Romanowski, Paul Wolf, who's just now coming into my world. But um, it, it was, I mean, what a, what a dinner, first of all, and what company to have, but also just your history alone, I mean, is really interesting. And I have to also point out the lineage between you, Pete Dell, and Steve Jenwick in relation to Al Schmidt, which I, I find very fascinating. Anyways, welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting aspect. The three of us go back very far in terms of years. In fact, Steve and I go back 
incredibly far at this point. I'm thinking almost almost 30 years off the top of my head or so, something like that. To the best of my knowledge, in terms of guys that have assisted Al Schmidt for the long term, there was Pete, then there was you, and now there's Steve. Is that correct? Yeah, it seems to be pretty much that. That's kind of the order, right? So sort of the backstory to it all is that I started in New York, okay? That's where I was born and raised, in New York City. So I started getting into the studio scene and engineering and all that kind of stuff in the mid-'80s in New York City. Moved out here to California late-'80s, 89, I think, to the best of my recollection. The first place I started working out here in Los Angeles was a studio called Cherokee Studios, which is now defunct and and gone. It's uh, condos and lofts. The old Cherokee Studios, which everybody in town knew, had been here forever and a day. The Rob Brothers, tons of great records were done at the ranch originally in Chatsworth and then the uh, facility on Fairfax, which is where I started working. And I had been there for about a year and Steve came through the door looking for a job. So that's where he and I first hooked up, was at Cherokee. After that, I left Cherokee and got the job working at Capital full-time as one of the staff engineers at Capital. That's where I met Peter Dell for the first time, was there at Capital. And then after being there, I, I want to say for, for about a year or so, there was an opening that came up over at Capital for a, a runner position. I called Steve and said, hey, there's a gig over here. Why don't you come on over? This would be a great place to work. It's certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a movement up the ladder, so to speak. So he came in and the three of us worked together there for a couple of years. And then I jumped ship from Capital to begin doing my own thing freelance-wise. A year or two after I left, I think Peter left and went to Sony Studios, the scoring stage, right? He worked Mm -hmm. on the scoring stage for a while. And then Peter moved into mastering and was the head mastering engineer at Universal for 12, 15 years. Now works at Aftermaster, speaking Mm -hmm. of Paul Wolf ties in the Paul, the Paul Wolf connection. So Paul Wolf is also involved with Aftermaster. And uh, they've also just opened up a, a new recording room as well at Crossroads of the World. So that's kind of the, the backstory to it all. When I started working at Capital, uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Frondelli was the studio manager at the time. And Michael put Al and I together when I started working at Capital. Michael is an old ex-New Yorker, so was I, so was Al, right? He figured, okay, these two guys from New York City, they'll mesh well. And we did, actually. And uh, for the years that I was at Capitol, Al pretty much worked exclusively with me there for years. And you're right, he had worked with Peter before that and some of the other engineers for all the the times uh, that he was at Capitol. But once I started there, he pretty much worked exclusively with me for those couple of years. And then once I left Capital, an amazing thing happened, which is that my phone rang one day and it was Al on the other end of it. (laughs) Hey, Bill, I got this gig over here, whatever studio, why don't you come over with me? Give me a hand. Uh, And uh, sure, Al, absolutely. Let's go. That then evolved into another whole bunch of years of he and I working together outside of Capital, pretty much five, six days a week. And the the beauty of that was, is that I wasn't tethered to Capital anymore. So I went with him everywhere, basically. Every studio in town here, from here to New York, to Japan, Tokyo. I mean, we worked everywhere. And after a time, the natural thing happened, which is that I began to sort of, you know, began to garner more of my own clients and wanted to sort of branch out and and just do first engineering and that sort of thing. And, you know, move along as, you know, the natural progression of things would uh, take over. At that point is when I said to Al, hey, Al, you know, I got a great idea, Al, here's Steve, Steve, here's Al, (laughs) you know, because I didn't just want to sort of leave him in the lurch, you know, and Al was always, had been familiar with Capital, obviously, for, 
quite a long time, right? Had been associated with the studio. He knew them, they knew him. They took well good care of him. So yeah, and that was a while ago, probably, I don't know, close to 15 years or Mm -hmm. so. And then, so Steve has been with Al through all that time period. And Al at this point has pretty much moved I would probably want to say, you know, 90 to 95% or even more of the time, he's just working out of capital. It's easier. You know, they know him, like I say, they know the routine. The rooms there are fantastic, right? There's everything anybody could want down there in terms of the rooms, the consoles, the mic selection, all that kind of stuff. So he's pretty much made that his home base, over the mm. last 15 years. But that's, yeah, that's that's sort of the, the connection that runs back very lengthy and very deep for, for the three of us. I'd like you to take me back a bit prior to California, to New York, and where did the recording thing begin professionally? Obviously, there I'm sure you had some influences as a youngster, but where did it begin officially in a professional sense? Pretty much immediately after I got out of college. Graduated college, uh, I took what was supposed to have been a six-month course at a place called the Center for Media Arts, right? Engineering and things like that. I I pretty much kind of knew this is where I was going to go with my life, you know, for most of my life. Once I figured out that, uh, you know, I I started as a musician, as a lot of us do, guitar player, that kind of thing, and that's sort of what sucks you into the whole thing. Once I began to realize you're probably not going to make a very good living as a musician, Bill, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there a whole heck of a lot better than you are. So let's figure out what else you can do and sort of be involved with it. it. You know, the same creativity factor, the same open mindedness factor and all that kind of thing. Then I got drew to the uh, the engineering side of it. I took a class, like I say, at the Center for Media Arts. I went through the first three months. You sort of paid every three months. At the end of the first three months, the instructor was a gentleman by the name of Gene Perla. And at the end of the first three months, Gene said to me, hey, have you paid for the next three months yet? And I said, no, I haven't done that yet. And he said, great, meet me here tomorrow at noon. Okay, great. I show up. Gene walks me around the corner to a place called Secret Sound Studios on 24th Street between uh, 7th and 8th. And Secret Sound Studios was Todd Rundgren's old studio that he had had in New York City. He used to live there where the lounge was at that point. used to be, you know, where, where Todd lived. Todd did a lot of records there, stuff with Boogie Klingman, uh, some of his solo records, uh, early Utopia stuff, I believe, as well. And that's where it all started for me. I guess Gene recognized something in me that made him think this guy doesn't need to be sitting in my class for another three months. He needs to be involved in it and, and out in the world. And and I thank God for him. He walked me in the door, introduced me to the owners, As it was back then, especially in New York City, you didn't really start getting paid or hired right off the bat, okay? You had to sort of prove to the owners that this is really what you wanted to do, okay? So I pretty much, I think, showed up five or six days a week for about four months straight for about, you know, 10 hours a day or more until the point where I think uh, I not only proved to them that this is what I wanted to do, right? Because as anybody who spent any time working in studios knows, if it's not really what you want, it's not really where you wanna be, right? It's not about, so many people think it's about, oh, I'll get a job in a studio and it's hanging with uh, all these famous stars and it's, you know, meeting and greeting and glad handing and all that. And then they get the job and they find out that it's not that at all, that it's actually, (laughs) it's actually work, hard work, long hours, hard work. It is that, okay. The 10% of the time is perhaps meeting, you know, musicians or famous singers and and that sort of a thing. But the the, the actual reality is the 90% of it is just hard work and dedication and commitment. 
So I spent about four months there till the point where I needed to start making some cash and walked into the office one day and said, hey, guys, I work here now. I've been here every day, six days a week for four months. I work here. I need to start getting a check. The owner of the place, uh, you know, a gentleman by the name of Danny Weiss, looked at me and said, you know, Bill, you're right. You do work here now. You've proved yourself to be an integral part of what's happening here. And if you didn't show up tomorrow, we'd be scrambling and hustling. That was the beginnings of it for me, was, was there at Secret Sound. And then from there, various other studios in New York City. I worked at the Hit Factory for a while, uh, quad recording uh, up in Times Square, uh, media, media sound for a wee bit a place called Platinum Island for a time. You know, back then in New York City, nobody was on staff. You know, I had never seen anybody on staff until I moved out to California. It was a revelation to me when I moved out <laughs> to California when you would be literally just working at one studio. And there, yeah. were, and there were things like overtime pay. And, and that's what I had never, you know, that didn't exist in New York. You know, in New York City at the time, back then in the, in the mid 80s, they skirted around a lot of the labor laws. Let's put it that way, okay? <laughs> so um, you were never really an employee of any particular studio. You were always sort of a, a freelance contractor, even as an assistant engineer. And the nature of New York City being so tight in terms of proximity, right? Space, right? It's not like LA where you can get in a car and drive for two hours and you're not even out of LA yet, right? You know, if <laughs> if you've even gone 10 miles for the traffic, right? <laughs> right. At, <laughs> at that point. So New York, it, it was very easy. You could move between studios. You could be across town in 15 minutes. Everything was very close proximity-wise. So you would work out of a pool of two or three studios. So if one studio was sort of booked up for a few days or you didn't have a session, that you could hopefully pick up a session at one of the other places you were affiliated with. So you were constantly sort of moving between a couple of different places. And uh, as I say, so they, they sort of skirted the labor laws a, a bit that way. There was no such thing as overtime or anything like that. I would show up and do sessions, as we all know, and we've done, you know, gigs that were, you know, 20, 24-hour sessions sometimes. And, you know, you were getting paid the same dollar value on hour 24 as you had been on hour number one. So that was basically the, the beginnings of it for me, was just sort of moving between a bunch of studios like that in New York City. Hit Factory was actually a little bit different. Hit Factory, you were actually an employee of the studio. That was the one yeah. place I worked in New York City where, I, where you really were sort of hired by the studio. But everywhere else, not so much. Prior to leaving and coming to California, I'm curious if... If I ask you to focus on that period of time in New York and think, what are the valuable lessons that you learned before coming to California? In terms of the hard, the hard work factor, again, it became very apparent very quickly what the job was really all about, okay, which is, as, as I had stated before, which is hard work, commitment, dedication. You've got to want to do it. It has to be your passion. It has to be something that's in your blood. It has to be something that you really want to do. I, I, I think that holds true for anything in, in life, right? If you want to succeed at it, mm -hmm. those sort of are the requirements. Certainly a little bit more in this world, right? The entertainment industry and the music industry and, and things like that, where you are working 10, 12, 16 or more hours per day, day after day after day. You know, I need a day off just to do my laundry because <laughs> I've <laughs> run out of clean clothes, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that obviously became very apparent to me very quickly. You've got to want to do it. I think the people who end up doing it for their entire lives and devote their entire lives to it, really truly have a calling to do it and, and a passion and a, a desire. People ask me uh, all the time, how did you choose this as 
a business? How did you choose this as, as to what you wanted to do with your life? You know, they, they look at all the hours and the craziness and, and those sort of things. And my answer kind of befuddles a lot of people. Some people get it, some people don't, which is I look at them and say, I, I didn't choose it. It chose me. I never had a say in the matter, actually. It was the only thing that was ever considered. I didn't sit and make a conscious choice as, you know, what do I want to do? I want to be a banker. Do I want to be a lawyer? Do I, it, none of that ever entered my mind, ever, not even once. So in, in terms of the work ethic, that became very obvious very quickly, but it didn't matter because to me it wasn't work. What caused you to want to leave New York and come to California? The want to, again, to continue to move up the ladder. The, the hmm. want to continue to chase the, the dream I had in my head of, of what I wanted to do with my life. At that point, New York City had a very good and thriving studio scene. There were a lot of studios in town. There was a lot of work going on. It's changed a bit, unfortunately, in, in recent years. But back then it had a big thriving scene. But to me, I always realized that the center of the business, the hub, the mecca, so to speak, was Los Angeles. You mm -hmm. know, this is where all the record labels were at least headquartered for the most part. This is where the majority of the work was going on. Many of the studios, as a kid, you, you know, you sort of see on the back of the records, this is where they all were. New opportunities, new people to meet. Just that, really, the, the one of, of just continuing to move myself up into, a, into a, a better position. I've always just wanted to be the best I could be. You can't really settle for second best. Anybody can be that. That's easy. I've always just wanted to sort of surround myself or put myself into a situation in an environment where there was growth potential and I could learn and I could continue to improve myself. Also, uh, the sunshine and, and the weather was kind of kind of attractive. I had sort of had my fill of uh, bone-chilling New York winters with uh, <laughs> snow up to your knees and, and all that sort of thing. So in many ways, a new adventure in terms of uh, the work, business, my own personal life and experience. And that's pretty much what drove most of it, Matt, just the want to uh, continue to improve myself. Was there a great difference between... New York and California recording practices or sessions, or were there aspects of one that was drastically different from the other? The same, but very different. You know, as I had mentioned before, I had never, in New York, I had never experienced anything like really working for one studio mm. or, or anything like overtime pay or the holiday pay or anything. I mean, that was revelatory to me, you know, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is uh, amazing that you could get this kind of stuff. So in terms of that, that was an eye-opening experience. The things I was able to expose myself to here in terms of the work was also much greater. New York at the time, there was one or two larger size studios with big rooms. New York being what it is, all the studios are in big buildings, office buildings, and things like that, right? So you couldn't really have giant live rooms where you could do things like, you know, big orchestral recordings or big band or these kind of, you know, giant sessions, you know, uh, you know, rhythm section and five saxes, four trumpets, four trombones, and then a 35-piece string section all go in at once. As I say, there were one or two places and there was a certain amount of that kind of work going on, but it wasn't the predominant work. The predominant work there was sort of, uh, at that time was uh, jazz records, okay? Because a lot of jazz w was done there in New York City. Rock and roll, you can almost do anywhere, right? You know, drums, bass, two guitars is, uh, you can sort of do that anywhere. And then also hip hop and rap which obviously in the mid-80s was enormous in New York City. 
You know, in fact, one of the last things I did before I left New York City was record an entire Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five record. Yeah, so that was sort of my my send off was uh, Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel. Again, to tie it into why I moved out here, I wanted to keep learning and <laughs> learning how to record orchestras and big bands and and finding all these different musical situations was kind of scarce in New York City. And again, I realized it was going to be something I, I, I probably wouldn't encounter until I got out here. So yeah, I mean, that was a tremendous uh, learning experience. Um all that stuff. And again, talking about Mr. Al Schmidt, once I started working with him and over at Capitol, yeah. that that was became almost every day of the week, that kind of stuff. Sessions on that tremendous level, that amount of people, that amount of attention to detail, uh, preparedness, which is far above what you need to do for, say, again, you know, drums, bass, two guitar kind of tracking date it makes hip-hop and rock look like a cakewalk in certain ways i mean everything's got its challenging aspects to it Uh, (laughs) you know from a technical level a personality level all those things so you know i i sort of look at everything equally they're all equally important in terms of uh, dedication and the and the job performance that you want to have you know some of them require you know a, a lot more microphones so to speak, and, and things like that. So the, the attention level in many ways comes up about a thousand percent, you know, when you've got, say, you know, 40, 40 musicians on the floor out there, the cost factor involved with that demands that you're in constant forward motion at all times, basically. There's really isn't any time spent hanging around waiting for the drummer to show up or, you know, let's take a break and, you know, watch TV for a half hour, that, that kind of thing, (laughs) you know, that doesn't really exist. It's nonstop movement. Let's break for lunch. Who wants Mexican food? Well, you get that on the, on the bigger dates, you know, but it's, it's a union structured thing, you know, 10 to one break for an hour, two to five, and then break for a two-hour dinner, and then say seven to ten. So it's a a regimented thing. So you get a lunch at least. A- again, it was a new world for me, and so much more to learn. These things I couldn't learn in New York. I was stuck. Right? I had plateaued. It's like getting your PhD in how to record an orchestra when you or a big band when you work with Al Schmidt. Would, would you? Agree? Absolutely. Of course. Who better to learn how to do it from? What are some of the lessons that you learned from Al from a, from a non-technical perspective, from a, from a life perspective? It was more a a takeaway of an attitude, I think, which is that you show up each morning with a smile on your face, that you're happy to be there. You're appreciative to be there that you do your best job for the client at all times, uh, 110% uh, effort at all times. Again, the concept for me of that it's anybody can be second best. That's simple, right? But where you have to step the bar up to be in terms of uh, going that extra mile. So an overriding uh, positivity, in, in terms of that and, and thankfulness and, and that nothing is really a hassle or a problem. You know, you are there as part of a, a, a service package for the artist that, you know, your job at the end of the day isn't to satisfy your own wants and needs. Your job okay. at the end of the day is to make sure that your client walks out of the door having had their needs satisfied. They walk out happy with what they've gotten and what has been achieved. And all other considerations are secondary for the most part. I mean, and I think that's what we do as as recording engineers and producers. And I mean, yes, it's nice to get the satisfaction out of it in your own way. But ultimately, your personal satisfaction has to lose out to the client 
You're there to help them realize their dream and realize their vision of what mm. they want to achieve. And really your function and your job in the room is to assist them the best possible way you can in doing that, which means that, again, obviously you might want the hi-hat louder or this in a mix or you, but you know, you have to defer. That's a huge portion of what I learned from him. Attitude, positivity, attitude is everything. Be happy to be there. Be grateful to be there. How many people in this world get to do what they love for a living and, and get paid for it and get to make a living doing it? Very few at the end of the day. And to just never lose sight of that. Never take it for granted, ever, not for one moment. Because really, I mean, we would have a great time together. It, it was hard work, but then again, it wasn't really work. <laughs> yeah. If you take my meaning, right? In other yeah. words, nobody, we didn't have to dig a, a ditch that day. We didn't lay brick. We weren't working on the, on the top of a, a skyscraper, 80 stories up, banging fittings into steel beams uh, i mean that's or, work in, yeah or coal mine or... exactly and just to be thankful and, and and positive and happy from a non-technical thing that's very much what i took away from him from all those years and obviously you take that message and that uh sense of appreciation into your freelance work that of course at some point you left capital you left working with al and now you're doing your own thing and you do a lot of different things from film, television, all different kinds of media and, and music production. So the lessons you've brought from your time with Al, I'm sure are have stuck with you and apply to these things that you do now. Sure. Absolutely. I'd like to think they were always there to start with yeah. as well. You know, that I was always appreciative of, of, where I was and what I was doing. And, uh, you know, as I say, just the fact that, wow, you know, look at this. <laughs> how great is this? Look at how, you know, I'm in the middle of a room with all these musicians and that's Natalie Cole standing there singing and I'm with Al and what's better than this, man? You know, not much. So I, I'd like to think that that's where my head was always at to start with. Even from day one back in New York uh, as well and, and the early days. And he just, you know, rammed it home to me uh, to coin a phrase, you know, that that's really what it's all about, you know, just to be to be happy, to mm -hmm. choose to be happy, to be appreciative, to appreciate what you've got, the gifts, the, the again, like I say, you know, the, the getting paid to do what you love. Bill Smith here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause from our conversation with Bill and talk a little bit about our friends over at Audio-Technica. Just a reminder, if you are going to the AES show, make sure you stop on by the Audio-Technica booth. That is uh, the AES Exhibition Hall. They are booth 422. And uh, stop on by. They've got all kinds of stuff, of course. Microphones, headphones, two of our favorite things, turntables. And while you're there, of course, make sure you tell them that Working Class Audio sent you. If you see Gary Boss... Say hello to Gary Boss. Say, hey, I was listening to Matt's show, and Matt said to stop by and uh, say hello. So do that. Stop on by. See all the great stuff that they have. And uh, be sure and check out their website. If you're not going to AES, that's at audio-technica.com. So let's get back into it with Bill Smith here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What is your world like today? What is, what is your day-to-day? -day? Is there a manager involved? How do you do business today and keep uh paying the bills you just keep going at this point no 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 management involved at this point although that might be potentially changing uh in the future today it's a different world than it was many years ago you know today you sort of garner your clients in some of the old traditional ways you know word of mouth friends hey i can't do this can you cover this for me 
running into people in the hallway of a studio. Hey, man, I got this thing. Can you do this for me? So there's still a lot of those old traditional ways, you know, people seeing your name on the back of a record that they enjoyed. You know, this sounds great. Let's get this guy to do it. These days, there's uh, some of that has gone away in the world of streaming and digital downloading. There really aren't credits, unfortunately. Hopefully something will be changed about that in the not so distant future. But that's sort of different. You know, people don't really have the opportunity to sort of read the liner notes or the back of the records, uh, like on vinyl or even on CD at least, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that kind of thing has gone away as people, uh, you know, with the uh, the advent of Pro Tools and the fact that everybody and their, their brother can have some semblance of a studio of some nature in their house, a lot more work is being done at home, even for established people that have been doing it for, you know, ever. I mean, you know, I showed you around my little place here, you know, uh, as well, uh, you know, sort of got the equivalent of a recording studio in my living room. So it's affected even me. So that sort of meeting, uh, running into people, those kind of opportunities has gone away in a certain way. But then on the other side, the social media thing has taken off. Online forums and, and places for people like us to congregate, you know, podcasts such as your good self is doing to bring people notice and attention and just to create a community. So that's mm -hmm. taken off in, in that way. So it's been a, a certain shift in the paradigm of how you find work or new work at least, and and garner new clients. And that's, I think that's been challenging for a lot of people. Challenging, I think, for the older guard a little hmm. bit more I, uh, than, say, the younger guys. The younger guys, this is what they know. So it's the older guard that sort of all of a sudden has to, we've had to sort of figure out, wow, you know, how do I get my sea legs in this whole social media world and all that kind of, you know all these things that never existed you had a telephone and <laughs> right you would call people just trying to keep your name out there as much as you can and get your name out there that's also a, a lot more of a part of the business at this point as well is g mm. getting your name out there my days in many ways are the same as they've always been i'm either working in the studio in whatever particular room around town, tracking, overdubbing, or now there's, again, an aspect of that that I'm now doing from my home to work with clients. Also, the paradigm in, in, in the whole industry has changed as well. So having the, the ability to do it at home also now helps you to, to not only garner new clients in a certain way, but also to maintain them and help them, uh, you know, get the, get the ball across the goal line in terms of what they're looking to do. So it's the same, but slightly different in those aspects. You're still hustling gigs. You're still trying to connect with people. You're still trying to network with people, constantly checking in with older clients navigating the whole social media aspect and and new work opportunities that way so it's very much the same you know when i'm not busy pushing a fader around i'm busy trying to hustle the next opportunity to push a fader around basically you've got to be very proactive it's funny people sometimes think uh if you're not sitting behind a console that day either in a studio or at your home that uh, you're not working that day oh you've got a day off and it's uh, you know that's so what do you mean I've got to do? I've got a day that now I've got to be proactive and hustle the next opportunity as independents do because there's no guaranteed check. The, yeah. Right. There's no paid vacation. There's no health benefits. There's no guarantee. Every Friday I get my pick up my paycheck. There's nothing. The end result of how far you go and what you get is directly uh, proportional to again, the amount of continual effort that you put in. All these changes we're talking about from a technical perspective, from a business perspective, how has your ways in which you deal with money, has that changed? Has that gone through paradigm shifts as well? I would say no, not, not so greatly in terms of how I manage my money. As a freelancer, you've always got to have your eye on the fact that as soon as you finish one project, 
if you're unemployed, basically, right? Unless you've got something on the books for whatever, you know, hopefully you've got something on the books for each week out of the month, right? Or or mm-hmm. beyond. But there are times for everybody where, no, you're sort of looking at, a, you know, blank, blank days and things like that. You've got to be mindful of your finances. And, and, and it's just common sense, personal responsibility. You still got to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. So I, I don't think in terms of money management, I don't think anything has really changed. Don't spend more than you earn. Take what you need and nothing more, I, I suppose. You know, I don't need a lot to make me happy in terms of uh, materialistic possessions. And I just stay within my means. You know, I have a budget. Uh, you know, I know what the bills are each month. I know how much I have to make to satisfy the bills. And and I just try to stay within it as best I can. You know, obviously not to say, you you know, I don't go out and splurge every now and again. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. But how you make the money has changed a, a little bit. And, and, a, and what I mean is in terms of where it's coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Because back then, nine times out of 10, you'd be getting paid from a record label. You'd have a PO number from wherever, Warner Brothers, Capital, Sony, Atlantic. You'd be getting paid from some form of a record label or production company nine times out of 10. Occasionally you'd get, you know, you'd work for an artist that was unsigned and you'd get paid directly from the artist. These days, it's very much flipped around the other way, 50-50, if not 60-40 in favor of the independent artist at this point. And getting paid directly from that independent artist. Exactly. And that's that's sort of the thing I've you have to sort of get your sea legs with uh, uh, quickly and learn how to deal with that again because with the labels you would have a PO number they were established entities you might have had to wait a while to get a check you know right sixty days or something like that but you pretty much could feel secure in the fact that you would get the check eventually you know <laughs> eventually right? eventually it'll show up at the door you might have to call once or twice but generally right there wasn't a whole lot of fear in terms of of that dealing with multiple new entities constantly right is something where you have to sort of realign how you cover yourself mm-hmm. however people want to go about doing that and everybody's sort of got their own thing that they're comfortable with in in terms of that you know um some sort of a a down payment or something up front that at least you know shows some good faith on the part of the the new person that you're working with at that point in time or however they want to structure it you know half up front uh, you know, back-end payment before I release any final masters to you or working with a lot of the independent self-financed artists, you have to become a little bit more flexible uh, as well where, you know, okay, you know, you'll get this amount and then you give me 30 days to get the rest of it paid off, which will allow them sort of hold back on, on the, on giving out all the final finished product until you, you've sort of been paid up. It's like that. You've, you, you have to be a little bit more flexible, oddly enough, at the same time, slightly a little bit more inflexible because you do need to sort of cover yourself in ways as well. You know, we we do, we live in the world as it is. Not everybody is um, forthright, right. as they say. So, you know, you want to try to minimize those sort of things as, as best you can without being a jerk about it. If you have a set of basic rules that you apply to everybody, then would you agree that you you kind of minimize those those encounters? Absolutely. I also think one of the most important things you can do with any new client is to have that discussion with them, the financial discussion and and the terms and things like that before you do a single lick of work. Mm-hmm. It's very important to be very upfront. It's very important to be very clear, concise, so that that way, down the line, there are no misunderstandings. It takes all of that out of the loop 
right? You're making music, but you're also engaging in a, a business relationship and a business deal to an extent with uh, any artist. So I think it's very important to, to do that. One of the things I've learned is that it, people say music business. It's sometimes much better if it's the other way around, where it's business music. <laughs> I like that. Right? Because if, yeah. it, if you've got the business end of things out of the way and everybody understands the relationship and their responsibilities in terms of the business end of things, that's what then enables you to, with a clear head, work on the music. Yeah. Right. There's nobody sitting there thinking, you know, man, you know, I've been here for 18 hours or whatever. I better be getting paid for all this. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind sort of what is happening. And I, I think a, a lot of the younger guys and it took me some time to sort of get it together and figure that out as well. You, you want to just jump right in and start making music. And having a good yeah. time. And, and I think when that happens, that uh, that's where the problems uh, on, a, on, the, on the business aspect can sometimes occur when you, mm -hmm. you, you know, when you leave the business till halfway through or until the end. I'm sure many of us have been in positions where we did just jump in and just say, yeah, sure, I'll just do it without talking about any of the money and everybody's got a completely different perception. So if you engage in that kind of behavior, you're going to end up pointing fingers and many of the time, but you're to blame just as much as the other person. If you, if you don't establish these things up front. Absolutely. And you're totally correct. You talk about common sense, youth and common sense. Yeah. You know, it's like oil and water. They don't necessarily always meet. Has there ever been a time where you we're just in a in a place where it wasn't working for you being a, a recording professional and have you ever considered stepping away and quitting and doing something else up to this point no as what i do to earn my living and pay the bills no not at this point maybe one day who knows uh, you know mm -hmm. I, I can't really forecast the the future i would like to think i uh, you know i wouldn't limit myself to any other opportunities should they arise. At this point, I still get the same sense of satisfaction and joy and happiness uh, out of doing this, you know, 32 years later as I did, uh, you know, the first day I walked into a studio. It's got some more mileage on me, obviously. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there've been some instances across the years where you may have had a project or things like that that was rough, but certainly nothing to ever change my mind about what I'm what I'm doing. Living up in the Bay Area, obviously, I, I have I know many people in the world of the tech industry of the of you know who work in 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 tech for whether it's you know Facebook or Google or Apple or whatever. And like the tech industry in the sports world, it seems that. There's a common denominator that when you reach a certain age, you kind of age out because in sports for, you know, physical reasons and in the tech world, uh, I'm noticing more and more that, you know, once you kind of get into your 40s and 50s, then unless you're a venture capitalist or um, you're the owner or CEO of a company, most people are young and age doesn't seem to be celebrated. Whereas in our world, it seems that we do embrace our older peers who have been at it longer and really look at, look up to them. It's a blessing that you could, you could actually start in your late teens, early twenties and take it as far as you want to take it without having ageism part of the equation. Not to say that age and experience isn't valued in the, in the corporate world and things like that. I, I just think maybe it's not valued as much. Also in the, in those worlds, you know, the, the company, you're part of a team that creates a product or products that is then sold by the company to the general public. Okay. Where, you know, now looking on the other side of the coin, say for, you know, in the music world here is, as you were saying, the self-employed independent contractor, okay, you know, guys like Al Schmidt. And Al Schmidt sells a product, but his product is Al Schmidt and all of his age and experience. And if you want 
his product, there's only one place to go. You can only, there's only one store to shop at, right? For, <laughs> for, for that sort of thing. So again, I think it's a different thing that's valued. And in our thing here, you know, the age and experience is still highly valued. Not to say that the younger youth culture isn't, but also the age and experience, yeah, is, is very much valued. And, and because it's tied to an individual as well, I think that's the big difference right you know it's it's tied to what an in, what a certain individual can bring to the the greater whole right because to me it's the the music thing is really you're taking variant parts and putting them together to create a pie or a whole where say with the corporate it's it's many people involved with the creation of the product but ultimately the you know the product only comes from whatever the company name is, yeah, you know, and you show up at the store and you go, okay, you know, I want to buy this from this company and here's another one from another company and here's another one from, from this company. There is really no collaboration on the part of the people who produce the product and the end purchaser of the product where in the music and creative arts uh, thing, that's all it is. You can pick and choose. I want to, these musicians will work the best. This engineer, this studio, all of these. So it's a much more, uh, you know, the person laying down their dollar is intimately involved with the creation of what the product is going to be. No, I, I, that's an interesting comparison because, I mean, literally in most products, you have the those that, develop it and everybody's segmented more you know and not everybody knows everybody in the in in the chain of it so in the world of music it's it's definitely a much smaller smaller thing sure um we're almost out of time and and i and i do want to just briefly touch on obviously you've made a lot of records uh but you have spent a, a fair amount of time in other areas of film television and 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 dvd surround dvds and those two worlds of music and and we'll just say motion pictures generically do they have different uh draws for you is there one that pulls at you more or not really no to me they're it's all the same but different Uh, right it's all music it's all creative it's all recording be it a rock and roll band an orchestra you know, the delivery formats might be different, you know, stereo versus a 5-1 mix. Your involvement was musical-based? Absolutely. Sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. Not necessarily post-production based in 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 dialogue or Foley or sound effects, none of that. For the, a couple of the, the film things, one or two of them up there that were sort of smaller budget independent film stuff, the, a movie uh, called H4, which is one uh, fairly recently, but any of the larger stuff, no, just on the, the the musical production thing. Although I'll tell you, the post-production end of things is fascinating. But no, the majority of the stuff would have been from a, a recording, mixing end of things and production on, on some of it. Well, a lot of it is very different, but the same, you know, orchestra versus, you know, rock and roll band, stereo mix versus 5-1 and, and all that. I'm a big fan of 5-1 of surround music. I love it. It's great. I mean, do you feel that it's a viable product as a, as a, as a business? I personally do. For the most part, most of the stuff I've probably bought over the last year and a half music-wise has been 5.1 surround music. A lot of new stuff that's been done, but also what's been coming out recently is, uh, at least for me, my age group, you know, uh, half the Jethro Tull catalog remixed in 5.1 by Stephen hmm. Wilson with, uh, you know, tons of extras and things like that. The entire King Crimson catalog, you know, the, at least the studio records for the most part. XTC is going oh, through yeah. their whole studio catalog and remixing in 5.1. Yes, Tears for Fears has done one or two things and in 5.1 Surround, the entire Genesis catalog recently. So... There's a lot of stuff that's continuously coming out in in 5.1. You know, a lot of it back catalog sort of things. But Mm. 
Yeah, I would. I I certainly think there's a viable market for it. Only in the fact that more and more of it keeps coming out all the time. I always found it intriguing, but I I never. It's one of those things that I just haven't really focused on or paid enough attention to. So I might be calling you in the future to ask your advice. Yeah, please do. I, I like I say to me, it's a, again just a whole nother sort of um, canvas to paint on. Rather, mm. rather than stereo, it's a whole nother opportunity to be creative uh, in how you present things, present the music. It's, uh, you know, it's just, it's not limited to just left or right. It can be all around you. Um, so I think that it, it opens up a huge canvas to be able to, to play in and, and paint with and things like that. And I'll tell you, for things that have been done well, and just even in my own experience mixing in 5-1 surround, it, not only does just the size of, uh, you, you know, the, the the whole scope of it, uh, right? And, and size, I mean, you know, not just two speakers, but, you know, out of the five. To me, I, I think if it's done well, that the in many ways the 5-1 mixes can even sound better. Hmm. than the, the stereo mixes. Uh, and this has been my experience in my 5-1 mix work that I've done, which is that in stereo, you've, you've got just literally that, two speakers. So everything mm -hmm. has to come out of those two speakers. Everything has to work. Everything has to fit. So you will at times have to, say, compromise the sonic integrity of certain things in order to make them all fit okay you've got three or four keyboard pads or parts right you will have to carve out frequencies uh, of certain things so that you can get all all those multiple things to sort of fit together and and hear them all right so you'll have to sometimes you know compromise the overall sound of something in a way that just to, to make room for other things to fit in five one that doesn't exist you could just move something further back or further forward you know you've got this whole left right this whole proscenium now that you can go from forwards to back with that doesn't really exist in stereo so i find that a lot of times um some of the EQing you end up having to have had done for stereo, you can undo certain aspects of it. And let things live in a more full bandwidth capacity? Exactly. Yes, yeah. that's exactly my meaning. Yes, that, that uh, because of the space. You know, you're not limited space-wise. You can literally move them further back in, into, into the room. That, to me, it's, it's basically you've got the whole band in two corners of a room. <laughs> right, you know, right. versus I could selectively put the put them all around the room and sit in the middle. Right, it's you're going to be able to hear things a lot more clearer. I'll have to give it a second look. I I mean, it, it's always fascinated me, but it wasn't viable for my my current workflow. I mean, I've got a lot of friends who look at me like you're nuts, man. Will you go to a, a live show? And the band is right there in front of you. And that's, and, and my answer is, well, you know, I'm not at a live show. <laughs> I'm, I'm in my living room. And why limit yourself to all of these other uh, possibilities to create and mm. to, to play with the material and bring it to uh, reinterpret it? Yeah. As well, in a way, I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't have any hard, fast rules in terms of any of this stuff. It's all, everything is up for grabs and creativity is creativity and end of story. It's all viable. It's all out there. If you're open-minded enough that you want to embrace it, go for it. Don't, uh, you know, I live uh, of the mindset of don't ever limit yourself. The minute you limit yourself, uh, you're dead. Right. Don't ever cut yourself off at the knees. Don't ever say, no, this can't be. Don't, again, that's a lot of what I've learned over the years as well. There, Everything is up for grabs. There is no, no. We work in a creative medium where there is no right and there is no wrong. There's only different. I think for a lot of the, the younger guys out there who I see on some of these forums arguing all the time about what's right and wrong, they haven't realized that 
There is no right and wrong. There is only uh, artistic interpretation. Everything is up for grabs. There's only different. There's no hard, fast rules about how to do any of it. If it works, it, it works. If it sounds good, it is good. If the client is happy, you've achieved your job and your mission hmm. for that day, right? So go home and feel satisfied that you've, you've done the best you could do for your client. And the, the, the minute you limit yourself and, and think you know it all, you're dead. That's the moment you've become stagnant. And, and not moving forward. That's the moment you get left behind. That's a good way to bookend this conversation. Well, Bill, this has been great to talk to you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again uh, down the road in person so we can chat some more. Hopefully we'll uh, do another dinner with uh, another roundtable of great people like we did. So uh, I thank you for taking the time to be on here today with me. Thank you for having me and asking me. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we'll chat with you later. So take care. Thank you, Matt. Bill Smith here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Bill on. What a, what a treat to chat with him and hear about his journey from New York to California and everything in between. So that was great. We are out of time. So let's start with thanking, of course, Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. I want to thank our sponsors, of course, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, and Gearsluts.com. Thanks for listening. I certainly appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.